Morning. Uh, my name is David Soren. I am the lead pastor here at Renovation Church. Hey, we are just a little over a month away from what we are calling the grand opening of Renovation Church. Uh, you may be thinking, I'm, I'm pretty sure we're open already. Uh, here's what I mean by that. We've been talking about this. I know so many of you are new, but over the last six, seven, eight, nine months, we've kind of been talking about it this way, that we would open up our building and then eventually get to a grand opening. Because we knew when we opened this place in early February, that was at a time where many, many people, the majority of people in some senses, were not yet willing to come out into a a large group gathering. And we felt like it's just going to be negative press for our church to advertise a large group gathering at this point. And so we opened up the building and then we decided that once we get to the fall, we're going to do a grand opening where we're sort of advertising all over town and really just inviting everybody in our community and beyond to come hear about Jesus in this place. And so we are doing this grand opening uh, on September 19th, and we're just really believing that that's going to be a second wave of God's movement this year in our church. Uh, We've really been in the first wave already. Uh, You can just look around today and you can see that something's kind of different for those of you who've been around this church for a long time. Uh, Just by word of mouth, uh, we've grown by 150 people in just six months. Um, That's insane. And there are so many people that are coming to faith at this place. And we believe there's just going to be another wave of what God is going to do when we get to the fall. However, I would say this. One of the reasons that this has happened the last couple months, there's so many new people here and there's so many people that are coming to Christ, is because, for those of you that have been here a while, you may remember back in January and February, we said, hey, if we're ever going to pull this off, especially if we're going to have three services, which we needed to do because of COVID in the beginning, we need a lot more people to serve. And you guys just stepped up in an incredible way. There were so many people that said, I can serve, I can serve more often. And we were able to pull it off. And the people who have met Christ in part have done so because of what you did. And I am so, so, so thankful for the group of people that did that. And now I would say to the 150 of you that are new in the last six months, we need you. If you're saying, this is my home church, this is where I go to church, we need you to step up and be a part of it so that God can do this again. One of the things that we say a lot here is that Renovation Church is not a cruise ship. We're just not a cruise ship church. We're a rowboat. And we want you to pick up an oar so you can change the world with us. And so when you came in today, there were two sheets of paper on your chair. Uh, if you haven't looked at them yet, take a look at them. It's just a sheet of descriptions of all the different ways you can start. These are sort of entry-level places where you can start in serving in our church. And we want everybody who calls Renovation Church their home to pick one of those places. And you can fill that out on the little serve card, or you can use the Renovation Church app as well. Would you take some time and even fill that out now? That is totally okay. And then when you fill it out, you can stick it in the boxes at the back of the room. Or if you'd like, you can honestly just leave it on your chair, and we can pick it up there as well. But we need you. God wants to use you. He has given you his Holy Spirit with gifts. We want you to use them in this place. And I know that God is going to use it in incredible ways. Okay, thank you. All right, let's get into our passage. We are studying the life of Elijah this summer, Elijah the prophet from the Old Testament. If it is your first time here today, let me give you some background on where we are in history and kind of where we are in the Bible. So Elijah, whom we are studying, lived about 850 years or so before Jesus. Uh, He lived in the nation of Israel. And as we've studied this summer, we've seen Elijah confront uh, the wicked King Ahab 
and his wife, Queen Jezebel, because they were leading the people of Israel to bow down to statues, to idols. Well, the royals aren't happy with this, and so they threatened Elijah. They even threatened to kill Elijah, and we've seen all sorts of drama happen throughout the summer. So we're going to grab our Bibles now and see what happens next. So we want everybody to grab a Bible. There's a Bible. If you're in the front row, it's under your chair. Everybody else that's in the uh, chair in front of you, grab a Bible. Uh, we're going to be on page 247. Uh, if you brought your own Bible, we're 1 Kings chapter 21, or you can always use the Renovation Church app, just have Bible and weekly verses. So page 247, uh, when we last left off, we were just finishing chapter 19, and Elijah had appointed his successor, Elisha, and then chapter 20 actually focuses on King Ahab. Uh, Elijah's not even mentioned, and because we're doing the life of Elijah, we're skipping to chapter 21 today. So chapter 21, so look for that big 21, and we're going to start right at verse 1. Here's what it says. So sometime later, there was an incident involving a vineyard belonging to Naboth the Jezreelite. The vineyard was in Jezreel, close to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. Ahab said to Naboth, let me have your vineyard to use for a vegetable garden, since it is close to my palace. In exchange, I will give you a better vineyard, or if you prefer, I will pay whatever it's worth. But Naboth replied, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my ancestors. So... Ahab went home sullen and angry because Naboth the Jezreelite had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my ancestors. He lay on his bed sulking and refused to eat. Okay, let's pause there for a second. Let me give you some context. So Ahab is at his second palace because he has two in Jezreel. And he decides he just has to have Naboth's vineyard because it would be just a killer spot to grow vegetables from. But Naboth refuses. And it's not because he's stubborn. Look what he says. He actually says, what does he say? He says, verse three, the Lord forbid. So why does he say that? Well, that's because according to the Old Testament law, Israelite land, if you read through the, the book of Joshua, for instance, you see this, Israelite land was parceled and appropriated to specific tribes, and then often even to specific families. And so land, therefore, it always belonged to your family, and it stayed in your family. I mean, there, you basically couldn't be a realtor in, in those days. The land was supposed to stay in your family. And so Naboth is saying back to King Ahab, he's saying, okay, I realize that you're the king of Israel, but the king of heaven has said, I shouldn't sell you this land because it's meant to be my family's land. And then Ahab, who's not used to people telling him no, goes home and throws a toddler tantrum. Okay, now enter Queen Jezebel. Here we go, verse 5. It says, his wife Jezebel came in and asked him, why are you so sullen? Why won't you eat? He answered her, because I said to Naboth the Jezreelite, sell me your vineyard, or if you prefer, I will give you another vineyard in its place. But he said, I will not give you my vineyard. Jezebel, his wife, said, is this how you act as king over Israel? Get up, eat, cheer up, I'll get you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. And we've just seen all summer, this is just a wicked woman. Look at this. It says this, uh, verse 8. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name, placed his seal on them, and sent them to the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city with him. In those letters, she wrote, Proclaim a day of fasting and seat Naboth in a prominent place among the people. But seat two scoundrels opposite him and have them bring charges that he has cursed both God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. 
What? Okay, verse 11. So the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth city did as Jezebel directed in the letter she had written to them. They proclaimed a fast and seated Naboth in a prominent place among the people. Then two scoundrels came in and sat opposite him and brought charges against Naboth before the people saying, Naboth has cursed both God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death. Then they sent word to Jezebel, Naboth has been stoned to death. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned to death, she said to Ahab, Ahab, get up and take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite that he refused to sell to you. He is no longer alive, but dead. When Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, he got up and went down to take possession of Naboth's vineyard. Okay, let's just pause there for a little bit. This is brutal, right? I mean, this is just pure evil. Jezebel, she has the town elders proclaim a day of fasting, which is, in their culture, that's like what you did when there was some great sin that had happened. And then we find out that they say that Naboth is the reason why. And then when Naboth is killed, you, you, I mean, we don't, we don't really know how Ahab is going to react, but you could guess. But King Ahab, rather than being shocked at his wife's devious and murderous dealings, he gets right up and gets on to his new vegetable garden. I think in a lot of ways, this passage really reflects what we might even call the mess of discontent. You think about Ahab. Ahab has almost everything the world could offer him, right? This is almost 3,000 years ago, so it's not like he has modern plumbing or anything. But at that time, he has almost everything the world could offer him. He has two palaces, but he has decided that he can't be happy. He's not even eating. He can't be happy unless he can get the perfect vegetable garden. I find that sinful hearts are always chasing after things. They're just stuck saying, as the Rolling Stones sang so long ago, I can't get no satisfaction, right? What is Ahab chasing? He's chasing satisfaction, but he can't find it. He's so desperate to find it that he's willing to kill for vegetables. I find that much of our American culture is stuck in the same sort of spiral today, right? People are more confused than ever in 2021 in America. We are looking for satisfaction identity, contentment, all of those things. We're looking for them in everything now. People are looking for them in money, in sex, in new identities, more and more drugs. Drugs are becoming such a problem in our culture again. Or, or maybe it's just an Instagram, hearts, you name it. It never satisfies, ever. And striving after it only tends to create a mess. And I think that actually is the deepest teaching of this chapter in the Bible. Because just when Ahab thinks that he's gotten what he wanted, then the consequences come. Okay, let's keep reading. Verse 17 here. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Uh Uh-oh, Ahab, okay. The Tishbite. Go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who rules in Samaria. He is now in Naboth's vineyard, where he has gone to take possession of it. Say to him, this is what the Lord says. Have you not murdered a man and seized his property? Then say to him, this is what the Lord says. In the place where dogs licked up Naboth's blood, dogs will lick up your blood. Yes, yours. Ahab said to Elijah, so 
You have found me, my enemy. I have found you, he answered, because you've sold yourselves to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. He says, as God says, I am going to bring disaster on you. I will wipe out your descendants and cut off from Ahab every last male in Israel, slave or free. I will make your house like that of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and that of Baasha, son of Ahijah. Uh, Jeroboam and Baasha were of two former kings of Israel, whose family, if you mention a family tree in their line, their descendants were completely cut off, and they were no longer going to be king. And that's going to happen eventually to Ahab. Because you've aroused my anger and have caused Israel to sin. And also, concerning Jezebel... The Lord says, dogs will devour Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel, which, by the way, actually happens. Dogs will eat those belonging to Ahab who die in the city, and the birds will feed on those who die in the country. It was never anyone like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by Jezebel, his wife. He behaved in the vilest manner by going after idols like the Amorites the Lord drove out before Israel. Okay, let's pause. <laughs> this is crazy right? You think about, just, just picture the scene, right? Ahab, he's finally got to Naboth's vineyard, right? He's checking out the vegetable garden. He's so excited. He's probably instructing his servants, okay, we're going to do carrots right here, and then the peppers. Oh, I can just see tomatoes right here. And then you can sort of imagine over his shoulder, he hears that chilling, intense voice of his nemesis, Elijah, going, the Lord has said. And what does, Eli- what does Ahab say back? Look at it if you have it in front of you. It's verse 20. This is really important. What does he say? He says, so you found me. What is that? Ahab, he knows. He knows that what he is doing, that what he has done is wrong. And he's been caught. He's been caught. And now he's told that justice for his sins is eventually going to catch up to him. Elijah tells Ahab, it's also in verse 20 if you're still looking at it. He says, you have sold yourself to do evil. It sounds kind of like a curious phrase, but interestingly enough, Jesus himself actually uses the same sort of terminology. John eight thirty four. look at what Jesus says. We'll throw it on the screen. It says, Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, everyone who sins, if you keep perpetually sinning, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. That is what happens to anyone, anyone on earth, who finds their identity, who finds their deepest meaning in Anything outside of being a child of God, you will be a slave to sin. You'll keep chasing after sin, thinking that it'll give you satisfaction. And when it doesn't, what happens is you actually start to live irrationally, like a slave of sin, thinking, oh, no, no, the next thing will give me satisfaction. You know, one of the things that I I think about when I look at Ahab in the story is his actions almost seem like that of an addict. Do they not? You think about addicts. Addicts will sell their own friends' and family's possessions just to get the next fix. They'll do anything because they believe that the next thing will give them satisfaction. I mean, think about this. Killing someone for vegetables is insane. But that's part of what God is trying to teach us through his word. This is where sin can lead any of us 
if we let it be our master and not God. And there's more. It's even more intense than this because one of the other things that this passage is teaching is that sin leads to consequences. Uh, The Apostle Paul explains it this way in the New Testament. So this is written to Christians. So if you're a follower of Jesus, this is written to you, instruction for you. Galatians chapter 6, verse 7 says, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh, that just means like the sinful part of you, the part that's just desiring sin. From the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit, God, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. So if there's a part of you that's like, I don't know if I completely understand that verse, what he's saying is this, that if you sow, that is if you plant, you continually plant sin into your life, Eventually, what will happen is you will reap, you will harvest, you will pull up the consequences of sin. You reap what you sow. And that's what's happening to Ahab. God's justice is coming upon him. Now, I think this is a really important principle, but it's a principle that we don't teach very often in the American church anymore. As in the American church, we have an overemphasis on God's love. We know a lot about the doctrine of God's love, but we don't know very much about the doctrines of God's justice or God's wrath, which the Bible also teaches about. If you sin, there are always consequences. The Bible doesn't just teach, if you become a Christian, God will cancel your sin and you can go to heaven. That is true. But the Bible also teaches, we just read it in Galatians 6, that if you continue to plant sin in the garden of your life, and maybe that's where some of you are right now, you just have some sin that is running in your life and it is unchecked. Well, the advice, the warning from Scripture is that if you continue to plant sin in your life, eventually you will pull up a harvest of, I would say, both natural consequences and also God's discipline. And often, if you think agriculturally here, just like a real harvest, the consequence, the harvest is delayed. Or you think about a farm, sowing and reaping don't happen the same day, right? But even Ahab in this passage, he thinks that things are going to be fine. I mean, the guy is probably whistling on the way to Naboth's vineyard thinking, ha, we pulled it off. This is incredible. But I will say to you, do not mistake a delay in God's justice as a sign that it's not coming. One of the things that is so important to understand as a Christian is that sin never works long term. One of the reasons that we sin, and we do all the time, every day, right, is we think that it's better. Why would you do it if you didn't think it was better? We've sold ourselves to this strategy, this idea that this is going to be better for me, this path apart from God's path, but it never works long-term as a strategy. In the book of Numbers in the Old Testament, which is actually about more than numbers, crazy, right? And it is, read it. Uh, Moses is admonishing two of the tribes of Israel, the Reubenites and the Gadites, and he warns them about sin, and he says this really interesting verse, Numbers 32, 23. He says, but if you fail to do this, you will be sinning against the Lord, and you may be sure that your sin will find you out. In other words, the consequence eventually is coming. 
Again, that, 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 may feel, that may feel like there's an intensity to you in that. Like, whoa, this, I'm visiting this church today. This dude is intense, right? If, if you're feeling that, I just, I, okay, move from your emotions a little bit and just try and think logically. You can interview anyone who's tried a particular sin and tried to live it out long term. It never works. I mean, take sexual sin or cheating. Eventually, it doesn't work. It breaks down. You take gossip. Eventually, that just deteriorates your friendship. You take greed. Eventually, you can get everything you want, but you might be lonely and isolated by the time you retire. It just, it all breaks down. One of the things I want you to hear me say as a pastor is I, I have met, over my 17 years of ministry, I've met with so many people, one-on-one across the table, who are just sobbing because they have reaped a harvest of destruction, as Paul said. So in other words, they made a series of bad choices, and eventually their lives fell apart. I assure you, sin is a liar. Sin is illusionary. The good things that you feel right now, they will not last. I think one question every single person in this room has to ask, including myself, is where is it in our lives right now that we've been choosing sin? Because we just feel like it's going to go better for us. It's just going to be better this way than going God's way. Can you trust the word of the Lord? Can you trust the word of the Lord that when he says, if you plant sin in your life, like Ahab did, that eventually... You reap the consequences of it. You know, this is one of the reasons that in Christianity we use this phrase, fear of the Lord. It, churches used to use it all the time. We don't talk about it much anymore in modern-day America, but it's all over Scripture. That we, in a sense, are to fear the Lord. And one of the meanings of that is that we, in a sense, are to have a healthy fear, a healthy respect, that if we choose to live in ways that are contrary to what God laid out for us, then we should literally fear that God is right. And his word is true, and then eventually it will come crashing down upon us, because it will. And even for those cases where you look at kind of from an outsider's perspective, you're going, well, it didn't seem to crash down upon them. A, we don't really know. And B, remember, there's an eternality to this too, that we all will face God in judgment one day. Okay, so Elijah pronounces the consequences, the justice of God to Ahab. And how is this wicked Ahab going to respond? Let's finish the chapter now. Verse 27. It says, when Ahab heard these words, this is shocking. It says, he tore his clothes. That's like deep sadness. Put on sackcloth and fasted. He lay in sackcloth. That's like what you do if you were mourning, if you were all torn up about something. And went around meekly. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Have you noticed how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself, I will not bring this disaster in his day. But I will bring it on his house in the days of his son. Which, by the way, is exactly what happened. Ahab's son chose to live a life of evil, and he was actually killed. And do you know where Ahab's son was killed? Just kind of like the prophecy said, his son was literally killed in Naboth's vineyard. But look at this. Isn't this just shocking? It's shocking. 
Ahab, of all people. And God says he's willing to have mercy. I mean, let's just, okay, let's, let's put this whole chapter together and think about this. And what you see is that God is a God of justice and a God of love. As we say here often, you are more sinful than you ever dare believe. And yet you are more loved than you ever dared imagine. The God of the Bible, the one true God, takes sin seriously. And we have largely forgotten that in America. But God hates sin. He hates it. Now, you, you may bristle at that statement. You go, oh, there's something I don't like about that. But I, I, I want you to trust me. If you were to work out logically what God would be like if he did not hate sin, I assure you that's not a God you could fall in love with. It's not actually a God you would want to worship. A biblical scholar, N.T. Wright, explains it this way to people who just want to say, no, God is a God of love. He's, he's doesn't, he doesn't hate sin. He says this. He says, the biblical doctrine of God's wrath is rooted in the doctrine of God as the good, wise, and loving creator who hates, yes, hates, and hates implacably anything that spoils, defaces, distorts, or damages his beautiful creation, and in particular, anything that does that to his image-bearing creatures, human beings. So anybody who's hurting or, or damaging human beings, he hates it. He hates sin. And then he explains it this way. He says, if God does not hate racial prejudice, he is neither good nor loving. If God is not wrathful at child abuse, so if God didn't hate sin, if he just looked down at child abuse and said, you know what, I just love here, I just love. Could you worship that God? You couldn't. He is neither good nor loving, if that's who he is. And what you see in chapter 21 here is you see a God who takes sin seriously. When his justice, before we got to that part about his mercy, when his justice was first pronounced on Ahab, we almost root for it. There's a part of you when Elijah shows up on the scene in the garden, you're kind of like, oh, here we go, right? When, you see this when you watch a movie, right? And the villain gets it at the end. Even as a kid, you know, as a kid, you're watching, say, Lion King or something, right? And Simba throws Scar off into the flames. And what are you doing as a kid? You're like, <laughs> burn Scar, right? You've, what do you, you feel that. What is that? What is that? That's true in any story, any movie you watch. Here's what it is. God has made you internally to want to hate sin. And to believe that sin out there in the world, when people are sinning, it deserves justice. Here's the thing. The great challenge of the human life is to see yourself in the way you look at others when you crave justice. That your sin is also deserving of God's holy justice. I find most people just don't want to go there. It's really easy to go there with other people. Like, oh, of course it needs to be justice. But when we look at our own sin, we're like, yeah, but I'm not like her. And we just brush it off. But when you do that, you rob yourself from understanding the depth of God's love. See, the less 
you understand how much God hates your sin. Not you, your sin. The less you will understand the depth of his love for you. I'm going to say that again because I think it's so important to understand because we don't understand this. The less you understand how much God hates your sin, the less you will understand his absolute depth of love for you. Can you see this in the word of God this week in chapter 21? God hates Ahab's sin. He hates it. He's going to bring justice down upon him. But then, shockingly, Ahab, he humbles himself. He repents. He's torn up about his sin. And what does God do? You know, what I think would be a really interesting experiment is if you took chapter 21, you left out the last couple verses, and you showed it to a bunch of people in postmodern America right now. And you said, okay, here's what happens. Look how awful this person is. He murdered an innocent person. He stole their land. Now God is responding. What do you think he should do when Ahab says, yeah, but I'm sorry? And I feel like most people in America nowadays, because we don't understand forgiveness in our culture anymore, would say, it's too late. God's going to say, it's too late. I'm raining down my justice upon you. It is too late. But it's never too late for God. And God is willing to have mercy on one of the most vilest, wicked people to ever walk the face of the planet. So don't you dare ever say in your own life, God couldn't have mercy on me. Because he just did it on Ahab. That is the love of God. And this is how God treats us. Our sin is absolutely worthy of God's justice. What we really deserve, it's not heaven, like people think, it's hell. I look at this quote. I've always found this really helpful. It's from David Platt. It says, most people are accusing God, asking, how can you punish sinners? How can you let good people go to hell? If you've ever tried to share your faith with someone, you've probably heard someone say this back to you. Why would God let good people go to hell? And he says this, but the question the Bible asks is actually exactly the opposite. It says, God... How can you be just and still let guilty sinners into heaven? And the only answer to that is that Jesus Christ. That God in his wisdom sent his own son, Jesus, to die on the cross to satisfy justice. Jesus would take the penalty that you and I deserved. And boy, we deserved it. We've been just living our life Killing for vegetables, right? Maybe not literally, but so many of us, it's like we've thrown large portions of our life away, trying to carve our own way, trying to find pleasure. We're out killing for vegetables while God is sending his son to be killed for us. It's, it's just, it's astounding, right? And Jesus takes the justice of God for us. And this is the true, beautiful picture of God. You cannot find a beautiful picture of God if you say, oh, God is just wrathful and he hates sin and he's justice. That's not, okay, yes. But, or if you say, like most people, they, oh, he's just loving, he doesn't care, there's no such thing as sin, he loves. When you really parse it out and you get into logic, it's not that beautiful. But the God of the Bible that is serious about sin and serious about love is absolutely amazing. And the most important question in your life is, have you accepted this in your own life? Most important question. Have you made a decision to believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for you? 
Have you said, God, I'm leaving my old life behind. I believe you died for me, for my sins, all of them. And I want to make you the leader of my life. That is what saves you. That is how we go to heaven. That is how we have a relationship with Jesus. It's not by being good enough. We'll never be good enough. And if you've never made that decision before, it is the most important decision that you will ever make. And I encourage you to make it today. In fact, what we're going to do is we're going to sing a final song of worship. And during that song, I want you to just contemplate it. If you've never made this decision before to let God forgive you and save you from your sin, to become a follower of his, I'll give you a chance to do that after the song. So maybe just talk to the Lord about it. Say, I I believe that you did this. I want to follow you. And I'll give you that opportunity afterwards. So let me pray, and we'll have that final song of worship. God, thank you. Thank you for your word. I thank you that you are serious about sin, and yet as you count the many, many sins and see all the sins that we have committed, that you are still willing and quick to forgive. You are slow to anger and rich in love. We're so grateful for that. We praise you for that. Now we just want to worship you and praise you and thank you for your unbelievable love that you have for sinners like us. And we pray. Amen.